Section 5 of Essays and Reviews by Charles Hodge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Latest Form of Infidelity, Part 1. Footnote. A discourse on the latest form of infidelity delivered at the request of the Association of the Alumni of the Cambridge Theological School on the 19th of July, 1839, with notes by Andrews Norton, Cambridge, published by John Owen, 1839, page 64. A letter to Mr. Andrews Norton, occasioned by his discourse before the Association of the Alumni of the Cambridge Theological School on the 19th of July, 1839, by an alumnus of that school, Boston, James Munro & Co., 1839, pages 160, Princeton Review, and footnote. Our readers are probably aware that the Unitarian clergymen of Boston and its vicinity, priding themselves in the name of liberal Christians, have never professed to agree entirely among themselves in their doctrinal views. Of late, however, a portion of their number have advanced sentiments which, in the apprehension of the rest, exceed even the limits of the most liberal Christianity. Hence this discourse on the latest form of infidelity. The pamphlets before us do not enable us to ascertain precisely what this new form of infidelity is, nor how far it is embraced by the Boston clergy. We know indeed that it has its origin in German philosophy, and that the Reverend Mr. Emerson delivered an address before the same association which listened to Mr. Norton's discourse, which was a rhapsodical oration in favour of pantheism. We know also that that oration called forth an earnest remonstrance and disclaimer from some of the friends and officers of the Cambridge School of Theology. The public papers, moreover, informed us that Mr. Emerson delivered with some applause a series of popular lectures on the new philosophy to the good people of Boston. We are, however, ignorant both as to the number of those who embrace this new philosophy and as to the extent to which they carry it. It may be inferred from Mr. Norton's discourse that he considered his opponents as denying either the possibility of a miracle or the truth of the New Testament history in reference to the miracles of Christ. Why else should he make the truth of the evangelical history and the absolute necessity of a belief in miracles in order to faith in Christianity the burden of his discourse? The latest form of infidelity, he says, is distinguished by assuming a Christian name, while it strikes directly at the root of faith in Christianity, and indirectly of all religion by denying the miracles attesting the divine mission of Christ. On another page, he says, Christianity claims to reveal facts, a knowledge of which is essential to the moral and spiritual regeneration of men, and to offer, in attestation of those facts, the only satisfactory proof the authority of God, evidenced by miraculous displays of his power. Again, if it were not for the abuse of language that has prevailed, it would be idle to say, in denying the miracles of Christianity, the truth of Christianity is denied. It has been vaguely alleged that the internal evidences of our religion are sufficient, and that the miraculous proof is not wanted, but this can be said by no one who understands what Christianity is, and what its internal evidences are. These quotations are sufficient to exhibit the two prominent doctrines of the discourse, viz. that miracles are the only satisfactory evidence of a divine revelation, and that the denial of the miracles of Christianity is a denial of Christianity itself. These doctrines are not necessarily connected. 
For, although it is certain that if the former be true, the latter must also be true, it does not follow that if the former be false, the latter must be false. It may be incorrect, as it doubtless is, to make miracles the only satisfactory proof of Christianity, and yet it may be perfectly correct to say that a denial of the miracles of Christ is a denial of the gospel, not because the only sufficient proof of the truth of the gospel is denied, but because the miraculous character of the gospel enters into its very essence. The advent, the person, the resurrection of Christ were all miraculous. He cannot be believed upon without believing a miracle. Revelation is itself a miracle. All the words of Christ suppose the truth of his miracles. They can, therefore, no more be separated from his religion than the warp and woof can be separated, and yet the cloth remain entire. The Apostle expressly teaches us that if the resurrection of Christ be denied, the whole gospel is denied. While, therefore, we dissent from Mr. Norton as to his first proposition, we fully agree with him as to the second. The obvious objection to the doctrine that miracles are the only adequate proof of divine revelation is that the great majority of Christians who are incapable of examining the evidence on which the miracles rest are thus left without any sufficient ground of faith. This objection does not escape Mr. Norton's attention. His answer is the same as that given by Catholic priests and high churchmen everywhere, viz. they must believe on trust, or as he prefers to express it, on the testimony of those who are competent to examine the evidence in question. As they are forced to believe a thousand things without personal examination on the testimony of others, he thinks it not unreasonable that they should receive their religion on the same terms. If they believe that the earth turns round because astronomers tell them so, why may they not believe that the gospel is true, because learned men vouch for the fact? It is hardly necessary to remark that every Christian knows that such is not the foundation of his faith. He has firmer ground on which to rest the destiny of his soul. He does not believe Grotius or Paley, he believes God himself speaking in his word. The evidence of the truth is in the truth itself. The proposition that the whole is greater than a part is believed for its own sake, and to higher intellects, truths at which we arrive by laborious process appear in their own light as axioms appear to us. So also with regard to morals. There are some propositions which every human being sees to be true the moment they are announced. There are others which must be proved to him, and the higher the moral cultivation or purity of the soul is carried, the wider is the range of this moral intuition so also with regard to religious truth, that God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, that he is not a Jupiter or a Moloch, is believed with an intimate conviction which no argument nor external evidence can possibly produce. It is believed for its own sake. It cannot be understood or perceived in its true nature without the persuasion of its truth rising in the mind. No man believes that malignity is wrong on external authority, and no man believes that God is good because it can be logically demonstrated. The ground of faith in moral truth from the nature of the case is the perception of the nature of the truth believed. It is seen and felt to be true. That one man does not see a proposition in morals to be true can have no effect upon him who does perceive it. And the only way to produce conviction in the mind of him who doubts or disbelieves is to remove the darkness which prevents the perception of the truth to be believed. If seen in its true nature, it is believed, just as beauty is believed as soon as seen. 
Faith is no work of reason and therefore cannot be overthrown by it, since believing no more arises from arguments than tasting or seeing. It is very true that the great majority of men have no such perception of the peculiar truths of the gospel as produces this unwavering faith. The only belief that they have rests on tradition or prejudice, or, in the learned few, on the external evidences of the gospel. The reason of this fact, however, is not that the doctrines in question do not contain the evidence of their own truth, but that the minds of the majority of men are not in a state to perceive it. What is the reason that savages do not perceive many things to be wrong, the moral turpitude of which is to us a matter of intuition? The reason lies in the state of their minds. So also the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual discerneth all things. The spiritual man then, that is, the man under the influence of the Spirit of God, discerns the excellence of the things of the Spirit, and he receives them because he does discern them. He sees the excellence of the divine character, the glory of God as it shines in the face of Jesus Christ, the perfection of the divine law, the accordance of the declarations of God with his own experience, the suitableness of the plan of salvation to his necessities, and to the perfections of God. He feels the power which attends these truths in his own soul, and his faith, therefore, rests not on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. It must be remembered that the Bible is a whole. The believer sees these doctrines everywhere, and he therefore believes the whole. One portion of Scripture supposes and confirms another. The authority of the ancient prophets, of Christ and of the apostles, is one and indivisible. As the prophets testified to Christ, so he testified of them. As Christ testified of the apostles, so did they testify of him. The object of the believer's faith, therefore, is the whole Bible. He sees everywhere the same God, the same law, the same Saviour, the same plan of redemption. He believes the whole because it is one glorious system of effulgent truth. As this is the doctrine of the Bible on this subject, so it is also the doctrine of the Church. Were it our present object to establish this point, the correctness of the above statement could be easily proved. We cannot forbear, however, to quote the following beautiful passage from the Westminster Confession. We may be moved and induced, says the venerable symbol, by the testimony of the Church to an high and reverent esteem for the Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery which it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God, Yet notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the truth in our hearts. Owen wrote a treatise on this subject which bears the impress of his sound and vigorous understanding as well as of his intimate acquaintance with the nature of true religion. Footnote, see his work on the divine authority, self-evidencing light and power of the scriptures, with an answer to the inquiry, how we know the scriptures to be the word of God. End footnote. In his treatise on the reason of faith, he says, quote, The formal reason of faith, divine and supernatural, whereby we believe the scriptures to be the word of God, in the way of duty, as it is required of us, is the authority and veracity of God alone, evidencing themselves unto the minds and consciences, in and by the scripture itself. 
and herein consisteth that divine testimony of the Holy Spirit, which, as it is a testimony, gives our assent unto the Scripture, the general nature of faith, which, as it is a testimony, gives our assent unto the Scripture, the general nature of faith, and, as it is a divine testimony, gives it the especial nature of faith divine and supernatural. This divine testimony given unto the divine original of the sacred scriptures, in and by itself, wherein our faith is ultimately resolved, is evidenced and made known, as by the character of the infinite perfections of the divine nature, which are in and upon it, so by the authority, power, and efficacy, over and upon the souls and consciences of men, and the satisfactory excellence of the truths contained therein, wherewith it is accompanied. End quote. This view of the ground of faith is confirmed by the experience and testimony of the people of God in all ages. It is a monstrous idea that the thousands of illiterate saints who have entered eternity in the full assurance of hope had no better foundation for their faith than the testimony of the learned to the truth of the Bible. Let the advocates of such an opinion ask the true Christian why he believes the word of God, and they will find he can give some better reason for the hope that is in him than the faith or testimony of others. Let them try the resources of their philosophy, empirical or transcendental, on a faith founded on the testimony of the Holy Spirit, by and with the truth. Let them try the effect of demonstrating that such and such doctrines cannot be true. They will assuredly meet with the simple answer, One thing I know, whereas I was blind, now I see. It is by no means intended to undervalue the importance of the external evidence of a divine revelation, whether derived from miracles, prophecy, or any other source, but simply to protest against the extreme doctrine of Mr. Norton's discourse, that such evidence is the only proof of a divine revelation, and that all who cannot examine such evidence for themselves must take their religion upon trust. The refutation of this doctrine occupies much the larger portion of the Letter of the Alumnus of the Cambridge Theological School, the title of which is placed at the head of this article. The argument of the alumnus, as far as it is a refutation, is perfectly successful. With his own doctrine, we are as little satisfied as with that of Mr. Norton. The truths of Christianity, he tells us, have always been addressed to the intuitive perceptions of the common mind. He quotes with much commendation the following passage from Professor Park of Andover. Quote, the argument from miracles is not the kind of proof to which the majority of cordial believers in the Bible are, at the present day, most attached. They have neither the time nor the ability to form an estimate of the historical evidence that favours or opposes the actual occurrence of miracles. They know the Bible to be true because they feel it to be so. The excellence of its morality, like a magnet, attracts their souls, and sophistry, which they cannot refute, will not weaken their faith, resulting as it does from the accordance of their higher nature with the spirit of the Bible. End quote. This language, as coming from Professor Park, if it be anything more than a specimen of the desire to express a familiar truth in a philosophical form, is something far worse. If this higher nature of man, which thus accords with the spirit of the Bible, is his renewed nature, his nature purified and enlightened by the Holy Spirit, then we have a solemn truth disguised in order to secure favour with the world. But if this higher nature be the nature of man in any of its aspects as it exists before regeneration, then is the language of Professor Park a betrayal of the scriptural truth. The doctrines of depravity and of the necessity of divine influence are virtually denied. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Unless a man be born of the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
The carnal mind is enmity against God. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. We preach Christ crucified, unto the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called, and to them only, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. To assert, therefore, the accordance of the higher nature of unrenewed men with the spirit of the Bible, is to contradict one of the primary doctrines of the word of God. It contradicts, moreover, universal experience. Does the character of God as a being of inflexible justice and perfect holiness do the doctrines of Christ crucified, of the corruption of man, of the necessity of regeneration by the power of the Holy Ghost, and of eternal retribution, commend themselves to the hearts of unrenewed men? Are they not, on the contrary, rejected by those who delight to talk of the accordance of their higher nature with the spirit of the Bible? If the passage on which we are commenting refers to nothing more than the accordance between the ethics of the Bible and the moral sense of men, and between its general representations of God and human reason, it is still more objectionable. It supposes that all that is peculiar to the gospel, all that distinguishes it from a system of natural religion may be left out of view, and yet its spirit, its essential part, remain is the spirit of a system which makes Christ a mere man, which denies the apostasy of our race, which rejects the doctrines of atonement and regeneration, the spirit of the Bible? Then, indeed, has the offence of the cross ceased. While, therefore, we dissent from Mr. Norton's doctrine, that miracles are the only adequate proof of a divine revelation, and that those who cannot examine that proof for themselves must believe upon the testimony of others, we dissent no less earnestly from the doctrine of his opponent that Christianity is addressed to the intuitive perceptions of the common mind, that it is embraced because of the accordance of its spirit with the higher nature of man. We believe the external evidence of the Bible to be perfectly conclusive. We believe its internal evidence, that is, its majesty, its purity, its consistency, its manifold perfections, to be no less satisfactory. But we believe also that the ultimate foundation of the Christian's faith is the testimony of the Holy Spirit by and with the truth in our hearts. Though the author of the letter to Mr. Norton devotes most of his attention to the refutation of the doctrine above stated respecting miracles, the feature of the discourse, which seems to have given him and his friends the greatest umbrage, is its denunciatory character, that is, its venturing to assert that those who deny the miracles of Christianity are infidels. This, it appears, was considered singularly out of taste and incongruous, seeing the discourse was delivered before an association of liberal theologians. Its members, it is said, quote, agree in the rejection of many articles of faith which have usually been held sacred in the church. A traditional theology has taken no strong hold of their minds. They deem the simple truths of Christianity more important than the mysteries that have been combined with them but the principle of their union has never been made to consist in any speculative belief. No test has been required as a condition of fellowship. The mere suggestion of such a course would be met only with a smile of derision. Quote. The association quote, is composed of the alumni of a theological school which has always claimed the favour of the community on account of its freedom from an exclusive spirit its confidence in the safety and utility of thorough inquiry in all matters of faith, its attachment to the principles of liberal theology and its renunciation of the desire to impose articles of belief on the minds of its pupils. End quote. That the exclusive principle should be adopted in a discourse before such an audience was not to be expected. 
By this principle is meant, quote, the assumption of the right for an individual or for any body of individuals to make their own private opinions the measure of what is fundamental to the Christian faith. As liberal Christians, it is said, we have long protested against this principle as contrary to the very essence of Protestantism. It was not because our exclusive brethren made a belief in the Trinity a test of allegiance to Christ that we accused them of inconsistency with the liberty of the gospel, but because they presumed to erect any standard whatever according to which the faith of individuals should be made to conform to the judgment of others. It was not any special application of the principle that we objected to, but the principle itself, and assuredly the exercise of this principle does not change its character by reason of the source from which it proceeds. End quote. This strikes us as very good declamation, but very poor reasoning. This may be just complaint about the application of the exclusive principle, but to complain of the principle is certainly very unreasonable. The author of this letter is just as exclusive as Mr. Norton and Mr. Norton as the Trinitarians. They draw the line of exclusion at different places, but all must draw it somewhere. An infidel is a man who denies the truth of the Christian religion. That religion is certainly something... Different men may have different views of what it consists, or what is essential to it, but all must regard it as embracing some doctrines, or it would cease to be a religion, and consequently they must regard those who reject those doctrines as infidels, whether they say so or not. This alumnus would hardly call Mohammedans Christians, though they reckon Abraham and Christ among the prophets, and believe in God and the immortality of the soul. Would he then call him a Christian, who denies the divine mission of Christ, the being of an intelligent God, and the existence of the soul after death, merely because he lives in a Christian country and assumes the Christian name. This would be to make liberality ridiculous. Yet such claimants of the Christian name are beginning to abound. Mr. Norton, therefore, is not to be blamed, even as a liberal theologian, for the adoption of the exclusive principle. He may have drawn the line in an inconvenient place. He may have violated the code of Unitarian etiquette, in making a belief in miracles essential to a belief in Christianity, and thus justly exposed himself to the charge of a breach of privilege, but he can hardly be blamed for making the belief of something necessary to entitle a man to the name of a Christian. We have no doubt his real offence was in drawing the line of exclusion in such a manner as to cast out of the pale of even liberal Christianity some who are not disposed to be thus publicly disowned. This is indeed distinctly stated. Your declaration says the author of the letter to Mr. Norton, quote, is that a certain kind of evidence, in your view, establishes the truth of Christianity, and that he who rests his faith on any other is an infidel, notwithstanding his earnest and open professions to the contrary. You thus, in fact, denied the name of Christian to not a few individuals in your audience, although you avoided discussing the grounds by which their opinions are supported. For it is perfectly well known that many of our most eminent clergymen I will not refrain from speaking of them as they deserve on account of my personal sympathy with their views, repose their belief on a different foundation from that which you approve as the only tenable one. End quote. It is plain, therefore, that the offensive exclusiveness of Mr. Norton's discourse consisted in denying the Christian name to those who deny the miracles of Christ. It appears to us, however, that the writer of this letter does Mr. Norton great injustice. He accuses him of confounding two propositions which are essentially distinct, a belief in a divine revelation and a belief in the miracles alleged in its support. You utterly confound, it is said, the divine origin of Christianity and a certain class of the proofs of its divine origin. Page 34. 
Mr. Norton does not confound these two things, nor does he, as represented by this writer, pronounce all those to be infidels whose faith rests on any other foundation than miracles. He declares those to be infidels who deny the miracles of the New Testament, but this is a very different affair. Many who feel the force of other kinds of evidence much more than that of miracles, and whose faith therefore does not rest on that foundation, admit their truth. Mr. Norton's doctrine is that the miraculous accounts contained in the New Testament are so interwoven with all the other portions of the history, and enter so essentially into the nature of the whole system of Christianity, that they cannot be denied without denying what is essential to the Christian religion. There is no confusion here of the thing to be proved and the proof itself. It is true, he teaches that miracles are the only proof of a divine revelation, but this is only one of his reasons for maintaining that the rejection of the miracles of Christianity is a rejection of Christianity itself. We believe this latter proposition, though we do not believe the former. We believe that miracles are essential to Christianity, though we do not believe that they are the only sufficient proof of its divine origin. The alumnus, moreover, censures Mr. Norden severely for calling Spinoza an atheist and pantheist. The propriety of this censure depends on the sense given to the terms employed. An atheist is one who denies the existence of God. But what is God? If the term be so extended as to include even a blind vis formitava, operative through the universe, then there never was an atheist. But if the term is used in its true scriptural sense, if it designates an intelligent and moral being distinct from his creatures, whose essence is not their essence, whose acts are not their acts, and especially whose consciousness is not their consciousness, then Spinoza was an atheist. He acknowledges no such being. The universe was God, or rather all creatures were but the phenomena of the only really existing being. It may indeed seem incongruous to call a man an atheist, of whom it may with equal truth be said that he believed in nothing but God. But in the sense stated above, which is a correct and acknowledged sense of the term, Spinoza was an atheist. We now come, says the alumnus, quote, to a still more extraordinary mistake, which arose probably from the habit, too prevalent among us, of grouping together theologians who have scarcely anything in common, but the language in which they write. You class Schleiermacher with the modern German school, whose disciples are called rationalists or naturalists. End quote. Page 133. This, he says, is as whimsical a mistake as if a foreigner were to describe the celebrated Dr. Beecher as one of the most noted of the Unitarian school in New England. This mistake is not quite as whimsical as the author supposes. The term rationalist is, indeed, commonly employed to designate those who, making reason the source as well as the standard of religious truth, deny all divine revelation. Have the pietists, says Röhr, the superintendent of Weimar, yet to learn that we admit no other revelation in Christ than such as occurred in Socrates or Plato. Of such rationalists, who are in Germany just what the deists are in England, Schleiermacher and all the transcendental school were the determined and contemptuous opponents. In another sense, however, the term rationalist is applicable and is in fact applied to the transcendentalists of the highest grade. Under the head of the mystisch speculativer rationalismus, Tollock includes the Gnosticism of the first centuries, the pantheists of the Middle Ages and of modern Germany. To this class of mystical rationalists, Schleiermacher undoubtedly belonged. As, however, the term is generally applied to the deistical opposers of a supernatural revelation, 
with whom he was ever in controversy, it certainly produces confusion to call Schleiermacher himself a rationalist. As to the question whether he was a pantheist, as it is a matter about which his learned contemporaries in his own country are at variance, we may well stand in doubt. Few unbiased readers of his Reden über die Religion, however, could regard him in any other light when those discourses were written. They are, to be sure, a rhapsody, full of genius and feeling, but still a rhapsody in which the meaning is a very secondary concern, which the reader is not expected to understand, but simply to feel. Such a book may betray a man's sentiments, but is hardly fit to be cited in any doctrinal controversy. Schleiermacher was a very extraordinary man, though he placed far too little stress on historical Christianity, i.e. on the religion of Christ, considered as objective revelation recorded in the New Testament. Yet, as he made Christ the centre of his mystical system, exalting him as the perfect manifestation of God, he exerted an extraordinary influence in breaking down the authority of those deistical rationalists who were accustomed to speak of Christ as altogether such an one as they themselves. He was a Moravian, and there is reason to believe that the interior life of his soul existed, after all, more under the form thus originally impressed upon it than under the influence of his subsequent speculations. It was no uncommon thing for him to call upon his family to join with him in singing some devout Moravian hymn of praise to Christ, and though his preaching was of a philosophical cast, yet the hymns which he assigned were commonly expressive in a high degree of devotional feeling and correct sentiment. Footnote. It was his habit to have these hymns printed on slips of paper and distributed to the people at the door of his church. End footnote. Such a worshipper of Christ ought not to be confounded with such heartless deists as Paulus, Wegscheider, and Röhr. The alumnus makes another objection to Mr. Norton's discourse, the justice of which we admit. It does not fulfil the expectations which the enunciation of his subject excites. It is not a discourse on the latest form of infidelity, it is a mere consideration of one subordinate feature of that form, viz. the denial of the miracles of the New Testament. And this feature is by no means characteristic of the system, as this denial was as formerly made by Paulus, as it is now by Strauss, men who have scarcely any other opinion in common. Mr. Norton's discourse gives us little insight into the form which infidelity has recently assumed in Germany, and still less into the nature of the opinions which have begun to prevail in his own neighbourhood. According to the alumnus, it is better adapted to mislead than to inform the reader as far as this latter point is concerned. You announce, says he to Mr. Norton, quote, as the theme of your discourse, the characteristics of the times and some of those opinions now prevalent which are at war with a belief in Christianity. This certainly was a judicious opening, and I only speak the sentiments of your whole audience when I say that it was heard with universal pleasure. It at once brought up a subject of the highest importance, of no small difficulty, and of singular interest to our community at the present moment. It gave promise that you would discuss the character and tendency of opinions now prevalent in the midst of us, that you would meet some of the objections which have been advanced to popular theological ideas, that you would come directly to the great questions that are at issue between different portions of the audience which you addressed. But instead of this mode of proceeding you adopted one which could not have been expected from your statement of the subject, and which I conceive to have been singularly irrelevant to the demands of your audience and the nature of the occasion. Instead of meeting face to face the opinions which have found favour with many of the theologians in this country, 
which are publicly maintained from the pulpit and the press, in our own immediate community, which form the cardinal points on which speculation is divided among us, you appear studiously to avoid all mention of them. No one could infer from your remarks that any novel ideas had been broached in our theological world, except such as can be traced back to the sceptical reasonings of Spinoza and Hume, and a comparatively small class of the modern theologians of Germany. End quote. He then denies that the writings of Spinoza, Hume, or of the German rationalists, in the limited sense of that term, were exerting any influence among the theologians of Boston, and that the speculations which really prevailed had a very different origin. It is clear from all this that a serious and wide breach has occurred between different classes of the Unitarian divines in New England, but the real character of the novel ideas cannot be learnt either from Mr. Norton's discourse or from the letter of the alumnus. It is indeed sufficiently plain, from the manner in which the latter speaks of pantheistic writers, that the new philosophy is the source of the difficulty. Speaking of the system of Spinoza, which he admits to be pantheistic, in a philosophical sense, inasmuch as it denies, quote, real, substantial existence to finite objects, he says, no one who understands the subject will accuse this doctrine of an irreligious tendency. It is religious even to mysticism. On that account, as well as for certain philosophical objections it labours under, the Bible, it seems, has nothing to do with the question. I cannot adopt it as a theory of the universe, but I trust I shall never cease to venerate the holy and exalted spirit of its author, who, in the meek simplicity of his life, the transparent beauty of his character, and the pure devotion with which he wooed truth, even as a bride, stands almost alone unapproached among men. End quote. Page 126. Such language, in reference to a system which denies the existence of a personal God, the individuality of the human soul, which necessarily obliterates all distinction between right and wrong, betrays a singular perversion of ideas and an entire renunciation of all scriptural views of the nature of religion. To call that obscure and mystic sentiment religion, which arises from the contemplation of the incomprehensible and infinite, is to change Christianity into Buddhism. The result, in fact, to which the philosophy of the 19th century has brought its votaries. In another place, however, he says of the leading school in modern German theology, quote, that the impression of the powerful genius of Schleiermacher is everywhere visible in its character, but it includes no servile disciples. It combines men of free minds who respect each other's efforts, whatever may be their individual conclusions, and the central point at which they meet is the acknowledgement of the divine character of Christ, the divine origin of his religion, and its adaptation to the world when presented in a form corresponding with its inherent spirit and with the scientific culture of the present age. There are few persons who would venture to charge such a school with the promulgation of infidelity. There are many, I doubt not, who will welcome its principles as soon as they are understood, as the vital, profound, and ennobling theology which they have earnestly sought for, but hitherto sought in vain. End quote. Page 146. It is difficult to know how this paragraph is to be understood. If restricted to a few of the personal friends and pupils of Schleiermacher, such as Lücker, Ullmann, Twesten, and a few others, the description has some semblance of truth. But in this case, it is no longer the leading school of modern German theology that the writer is describing. 
and if extended to the really dominant school, the description is as foreign from the truth as can well be imagined. We have so recently exhibited at considerable length. End of section 5.